Daphne du Maurier's My Cousin Rachel is the story of the orphaned Philip Ashley, whose beloved guardian, his uncle Ambrose, dies in Italy under mysterious circumstances. Convinced his uncle was murdered, Philip meets with his mysterious widow at his newly inherited estate, only to fall under her spell himself. Hello and welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and today I'm talking to Michelle Cox, author of the popular Henrietta and Inspector Howard mystery series set in 1930s Chicago. Michelle and I had a great time figuring out why this enduring Gothic novel remains a classic even now, 70 years after it was published, and how difficult it is to categorize into a neat genre. If you love books packed with atmospheric mystery and tantalizing ambiguous endings, you're going to love hearing why My Cousin Rachel is the best book ever. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Julie. I can already tell we're in for a good conversation here. (laughs) But will you start by telling us about your reading life, Michelle? How did you come to be a reader? Um, I, you know, it's a good question. I feel like I've always been a reader. So uh, no one's ever asked me this exactly. But when I, I remember, um, I was very little, I wasn't in kindergarten yet. I walked into the kitchen and I said to my mom, I pointed to the stove and I said, that says magic chef. And she said, who told you that? I said, I don't know. I just read it. So I, I, I don't remember actually learning how to read. I just remember that I could read. And I think it was probably because my mom read to us so much. Um, so, yeah, I started reading very, very young. And um, all through my mom took us to the library a lot. Um, I <laughs> I had a, a great relationship with my um, grade school librarian, Sister um, Madeline, who was this really, really old nun that had actually taught my grandfather. So she taught my grandfather, my, oh my father. Gosh. And then by the time I got there, she was, you know, relegated to the library. <laughs> <laughs> but she was so, she just really, um, she, she was a sweet old lady. She had so much love for books and she could tell that I really loved books too. And so she gave me, you know, the privilege of the last day of school. I was allowed to go into the school library and, and take as many as I could carry. Oh my God. <laughs> home on the bus for the whole summer and it was such a treat it's such a privilege i would have pulled like a she-hulk move did you just gather <laughs> all of a sudden you've got biceps out to here did you just take everything you could get your hands on i tried i tried so hard and she didn't make me check them out she didn't oh. write them down she just trusted that i would bring them all back so um yeah and then i remember going to the when I got through with those, I, you know, we would go to the library for the summer. And um, I remember I was probably, I don't know, maybe 12. And my, I said to my mom in the library, just like walking through the stacks and trying to decide what to pick. And I said, mom, you know, do you just feel like I should read the classics, but do you think, do you think, or do you think I should just read, you know, like trash, whatever I want for, for the summer? And she's like, just read trash. And I'm like, no, I got to read the classics. <laughs> Even that. So I only read the classics, really. I mean, I there were some deviations, but 
it wasn't until probably after my third kid was born and my mind was just shot. And I'm like, you know what? I can't read any more Dickens at this point or Shakespeare. I really, I need something light. And that was when I first started reading contemporary fiction, which is why I'm so far behind because I uh, spent so many years just, you know, reading classics. So I got to college. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I did two years of pre-med. I kind of always wanted to be a writer, but I was too afraid. And I thought that um, studying to be a doctor sounded easier <laughs> than being a writer. <laughs> Turns out it's true. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I I happened to be taking a Victorian lit class my junior year. And I thought, you know, it just hit me like a lightning bolt. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> you, you, this is where you're meant to be. So I switched my major. I did a lit major in two years and um, it just really didn't look back. So All those years you were reading the classics and not reading contemporary literature, were you enjoying it or was it more like checking things off a list? No, I loved it. I, I was just so, yeah, I just, I really loved it. I came out with a, a lit degree and that really set me up, you know, for analysis and all that kind of stuff. And so I loved it. Um, but I, like I said, when I, I started to, you know, need something a little lighter, I of course turned to historical fiction because that was something that was still set in the past but was easier to read than, you know, reading Shakespeare or something like that. So, yeah. So tell us about your writing. You write both novels and a very popular weekly blog about Chicago, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Can you Um, tell our listeners about that? Sure. I write the um, Henrietta and Inspector Howard series, which is a um, sort of a mystery romance set in the 30s in Chicago. And it is based on a woman that I met in a nursing home. So Henrietta was the protagonist, the the heroine of the series. She's actually based on a real person who had this amazing life in the um, 30s and 40s in Chicago. And so a lot of what happens in book one of the series, which is called A Girl Like You, a lot of what happens in that book actually really happened to her. Of course, you know, I had to invent the the handsome aloof inspector and the murder and all of that but a lot of it really did happen and I that's also the basis of my weekly blog which is dedicated to forgotten residents of Chicago so uh I just take a different story I heard in the nursing home and tell that story every week and that has been hugely successful the blog has its own following separate from my readers of the series because so many people just love those quick true stories of ordinary people in Chicago and what they went through what they lived through and um there's they're just real gems of history why are you at the nursing home do you work there or oh volunteer? yes I had a I had a job there in the so I got out of college with a, a lit degree <laughs> Just pretty much useless unless you're going to teach. Um, and I got a job at a graphic arts firm, lithography, because the old school term, and hated it. And um, then I started working as the admissions director in a, at H. Uh, Bohe- it was called the Bohemian Home for the Aged and Orphans. So it was very old. Of course, there was no orphans there when I got there, but um, it was a very unique kind of 
nursing home and it it um many 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 Czech and Polish residents there uh but I was spending so much time <laughs> sitting with residents and like listening to their stories <laughs> instead of being in my office like you know chasing ambulances and calling up hospitals saying hey do you have anybody for us um that the administrator was like you know he called me into his office one day and and I'm like I'm gonna get fired <laughs> he's like look um this isn't working I'm like so he's like you know what we're gonna move you into social service and I'm like oh my god that's my dream job so I became the social service director and then it was my job to sit and listen to people and try to help them and all that kind of stuff so it was great and hear all these stories which then sparked your imagination well first of all I'll say to anybody out there if well if you're a writer and you're searching for ideas, just go sit in a nursing home for about two weeks and you'll have more stories than you could ever, ever, ever use. Mm. And one of the details from this woman that I based Henrietta on was that um, she was a, a 26 girl. And apparently that's something that was only unique to Chicago. It was a dice game that was played in taverns and there were girls, women who would keep score, but really their real job was to push drinks so this woman really wasn't a 26 girl. And so I made Henrietta a 26 girl and I was doing some research and I found a bar that had once upon a time had 26 girls, was not too far from where the fictional Henrietta lived. And they have a back room the, the hideout is the name of the bar, but where they produce um, a show that's on PBS now called um, The Interview Show. So I'm like, I have to go to this bar, even though yeah. I live like an hour north of the city. So I went there and I found out that they have this interview show and that they they um, broadcast it on PBS. And I'm like, I, I have to be on the show. It, <laughs> it was meant to be. You have to have me. So I spent three years going to this bar and, you know, on and off and, and watching the show and introducing myself to the host and blah, blah, blah. And, and I finally got on it. So I'm like, I have to do this for Henrietta. I just have to do it. So, yeah, there's a lot of stories. My friends, I know you've just barely settled into your pumpkin spice latte season. And now I have the audacity to point out that the holidays are coming upon us fast. I'm hard at work on my third annual Kids in YA gift-giving episode, where I interview a bunch of young people about books, and I would love to talk to your favorite young reader. This is my most popular episode every year, and my favorite to record, because kids are my favorite people. If you know a young person, ages 5 to 20, who would like to tell me about a book, I would love to talk to them. Check the show notes or go to my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com, and click on the button that says... Be a guest on the third annual Kids YA Gift-Giving Guide. I can't wait to hear from you. Now, back to the show. Now, do you remember how you found this book that we're talking about today, My Cousin Rachel? Yeah, that's a great um, question. I like to build my series instead of sometimes calling it a mystery romance series. I think of it as a romantic suspense. And because the, the romance is very much uh tied to the mystery and they're sort of both unfolding at once but when i found out that most romantic suspense books are have a cover with a, a guy with you know his shirt off 
like that's definitely not my book, but um, I did a little research and I think Daphne de Moray is considered the inventor of the romantic suspense. And so um, I'm like, well, you know, if this is what you think you're writing, you should probably read the master of it and see, you know, how your work compares to her. So I finally broke down and read it and I just loved it. Will you tell our listeners what My Cousin Rachel is about? Well, yeah, it's about this man um, whose uh, guardian, who he's very close to, he thinks of as a father, goes off to Italy for his health and marries a woman, a very young woman, um, who claims to have some sort of, you know, um, connection to the family. So anyway, this is very strange to the to the young man, Philip, because his his um, guardian has never been interested in women before. And then he s- suddenly writes to him and says, oh, by the way, I'm getting married. And then he starts to get other letters saying, you know, um, sh- you know, she's now my my torturer. She's my she's poisoning me. I'm dying. Please come help me. So he dashes off and um, eventually he ends up she ends up coming over to England to meet him. And he's determined to hate him and quickly begins to fall in love with her. And so the whole story is, a you know, did she poison the guardian did she not is she guilty is she not you know it's really the whole novel is a huge question of of who's lying who's telling the truth who really killed who it's it's fantastic i loved it and you and even at the end you still really don't know you really don't know and i was thinking as i was reading this that this trope of is something happening or is the main character going insane? Yes. Is possibly yes. my favorite in all of literature. It is possibly my favorite thing to read. And it is such a fine needle to thread. It's something I've tried to write several times without success. It's so hard. It's it really, hard. really difficult because it's so easy to tip into, oh, he's just nuts. You know, right. and this one is so subtle. And you're right. At the end, you're pretty sure you know what's going on, yeah. but a little bit unsure. It's possible. <laughs> that last yes. line, I was like, wait, so what What does that mean? Yeah. And I wonder if that would fly today. Mm. If that this type of novel, if it came out now if readers would accept the sort of ambiguous ending because that's not that's not quite so popular these days it seems to me that the last minute twist is really popular but it the last minute question not so much exactly yeah that i i i really think that's true but for me i loved it because you're you're left thinking about it for days you're just wondering and I think she was able to get away with this. I think she wrote this. It was published, I think, in the 50s, right? Yeah, I have 1952 in my notes. Right. But it is set, I think it's the 1800s. And I think that that gives her a little bit of license. So I think that writing that trope that you were talking about, you know, is something really going on or is the person insane? That's a little bit harder, I think, to write mm-hmm. uh, 
as a contemporary novel. I think it's it might be a little easier to do that with a historic historical lens. Why do you think that is? Because it's more difficult to prove anything. So you don't have forensics and you don't have, you know, a, a, an autopsy and you know, mm. all this kind of stuff. It's it's ambiguous. Also, we have a totally different understanding of mental health. Yeah, which is why, I mean, a lot of there's a lot of mental health issues in my series as well. And it's easier to get away with it because, as you're saying, there's there's a huge misunderstanding of different mental conditions and you as an author you can kind of play on that and that gives you sort of a lot of license to you know come up with plot twists and all that kind of stuff and there's also the gender relation aspect which is so different which i thought was great in a historical context because there's you know we have these two bachelors living in this estate in england and he says several times Ambrose was his uncle, right? His his right. guardian. Yes. Was never interested in women. And so I thought, oh, huh. I wonder what's going on here. Are we do are we confirmed bachelors? What's going on? But then Ambrose falls head over heels for her. Right. And then Philip, who I also thought was a quote unquote confirmed bachelor, falls head over heels for this woman. And then I thought, I suppose in that day you really could just be so isolated from female society that right. he had because there were a couple of moments where you think, come on, Philip. <laughs> right. Pretty, it's pretty clear what's happening here. Yes. But I could also understand how he just would have no concept of how women worked at all. Like he loses his mind the first time she starts crying. He says, you have yes. to get out of this room because I've never seen a woman cry before. <laughs> right. Which is amazing. Right. And I think there's a line where he says that the only women that had ever been allowed in the house were the dogs, which I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, and his lawyer's daughter who's yes. kind of he kind of is, says is almost like a cousin to or a sister to him but he doesn't think of her as a woman at all no right which is very weird to me i'm yeah it, it you wonder could that really have happened could they have really been so isolated that they had no knowledge of the female sex yeah i guess i mean yeah well it certainly <laughs> he, helped rachel right <laughs> Twist, twist both of them around her finger. Have you read other Daphne du Maurier books? No, I haven't. But I bought, I bought a bunch of them after this because I was, I loved her writing so much. I really felt like she is able to write as if she were a classic, classical writer. And I think that is kind of the goal maybe of all historical fiction writers is to be able to sound like you actually wrote this book in the 1800s. And I think that she does an amazing job at that. So do you feel like it holds up in 2022? I do. Yeah. I mean, I think it could easily, you know, be a very popular book, except for, you know, the ambiguous ending. I'm not sure how that would fly these days, but um, I certainly liked it. And also, I mean, I'm not sure you would probably know being a romance writer, um, I all romances, as far as I, I know, have to have a happily ever after. Right. And 
I'm not sure this one does. And I don't know if that applies to romantic suspense. Maybe that it you don't you don't have that sort of formula where you have to have a happy ending. I don't know. You know, I read that she was known as a popular romance author and she hated the term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I can see why, because this to me is not a romance at all. It's really not. In modern genre, I would call it thriller or thriller suspense, maybe, or yeah. suspense with a romantic element. But that sounds more like it, yeah. Yeah, definitely anything these days, any book that is classified in the romance genre, by definition, has a happily ever after, right? Or right. or HFN, we also say happy happy for now. Yes, right. <laughs> which this which, also doesn't have. Which this does not have. <laughs> no. So I wouldn't, I don't think if this were released now, I don't think it would be considered anywhere near romance. Or or romantic suspense. No. I don't I, I don't think so. See, this is what's so great about this book is this is that line I was telling you about is what's actually happening? Is he sane or is he not sane? You can read it either way. He's being manipulated and and taken for everything he's got, or he is misreading everything and he's losing his mind. I don't know. Or right. she's innocent and he really does love someone innocent and then he ruins it all. Any of those things could be true. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I do think you're right. It's not your traditional romance. It's not about two people falling in love. It's about the concept of romance or love and whether, as you're saying, whether it's it's really real or not. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. And I was I know we mentioned the movie before we started um, the recording. It. I did catch something at the very beginning of the movie that I didn't remember from the book where he says he he's coming back from school and he's like, I found that I didn't, didn't like cities, didn't like being around a lot of people, didn't like clever conversation. And I thought, Hmm, is that setting us up for him not really being all that intelligent and being you know, easily manipulated. But you would think having been away to school, been in a big city, he has had some exposure, at least four years of, you know, the way the the modern world works, modern at that time. Mm -hmm. And yet he comes back and he's almost, you know, still an innocent. So I thought that was an important detail. Yeah. And that's kind of implied in the book as well. He says that he's not one for conversations and Mm -hmm. even when he starts to become infatuated with Rachel she sits and does her sewing by the and he just likes to watch her yes right and he doesn't like when people come for dinner and she's distracted by other company it's which is also creepy the whole thing is creepy (laughs) god there's I just felt like I was Ugh, I was being sort of smothered a little bit. It was such a delicious book because I it felt very physical to me because there were times where you just felt absolutely crushed by that house. Yeah, yeah. And I thought one of the, not only did you have the whole thing that's going on between Philip and Rachel, but I loved 
the fact that the reader is all the, the whole time trying to figure out what happened to Ambrose. Mm-hmm. And there's all of these great l- l- secret letters that he finds where the uncle is saying, you know, she's trying to kill me. And he's trying to figure out, is he insane? Even as the reader's trying to figure out, not only is Ambrose insane, but is Philip insane? Right. It's just, right. it's like a layer within a layer within a layer. And it, it, it just was so, you almost felt as excited as Philip did when he would find these old letters. Because you're like, oh, more of the mystery. What's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I started about midway through the book. I noticed that he always used all three words, my cousin Rachel, every time he talked about her. And then my cousin Rachel picked up her sewing. And then my cousin Rachel ate her dinner. And so I started underlining it. There's one page where he says all three words, my cousin Rachel, five times on one page. And I thought it was such a masterful stroke because it was like, remember being a teenager and you had a crush on someone and you just wanted to say their name for any reason. You just, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like you just look for any reason to say that name. Yes. And then, and I saw the exact moment where it switched to him saying, Rachel, Rachel picked this up and I, and I circled it and I, I don't know, maybe that was the writer Ooh. in me, but it was really interesting to watch the swap. Mm. At first he calls her Mrs. Ashley and then he calls her my cousin Rachel for a, and he says it a lot. And then it's <laughs> after a significant moment, it switches to Rachel. Do you think that he was seeing it so much? As a way of convincing himself or reminding himself that this is my cousin. When really, it's interesting too, because he refers to her as his cousin, which she is technically, but he's also kind of like his stepmother. Ew. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) But that connection is never made. And so it's almost like, is it easier for him to refer to her as my cousin Rachel instead of my stepmother? Or yeah. is or is he reminding himself she's my cousin, so I really shouldn't go after her in a romantic way? No, because I don't think they had that barrier in that day and in that, you know, upper yeah, that's true. upper crust English the gentry society you know right ambrose married her and he that's was te- true. he was technically her cousin too i hadn't thought about the stepmother angle that gives me the willies right so it's very it's a little bit incestuous yep because he <laughs> right which is just yeah it's kind of creepy listener you can't see this, but we are both grinning madly. <laughs> the second she said it's incestuous, we both smiled really big there. It's, right, it's right. weird how great this complication is. I just thought it was brilliant, but not overdone. It was just right. the right touch. It's perfect. Now, so tell me about the movie, because again, as I was getting prepared to talk to you, I don't, I, it had never registered to me. That there was a movie about this, although Rachel Weiss is one of my favorite actors. You yeah. know, there's something so mysterious about her face. And as soon as I saw that she was Rachel, I went, perfect, <laughs> perfect because she doesn't give you everything in her face. No. And I'm not sure, you know, there are certain actresses, if they were Rachel, you would know right away. Oh, I know. I know you did it. Mm-hmm. But with her, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. There's I a think quiet she- intensity to her. Perfectly said. Quiet yeah, intensity. Yeah, 
So what did yeah. you think of the movie adaptation? You know, I thought I thought the beginning, you know, the whole backstory with Ambrose was a little rushed, but I knew obviously they have to get through the whole book in an hour and a half, so fine. I thought the that it, it was the atmosphere, the cinematography was great. I think they really set the stage. And I also think it was really interesting how the house itself transformed as the movie went along from being this sort of like big dump to being this sort of, you know, nice place. Um, the only, the thing that I, and I thought the, the, the performances were great. Um, but I, I just hated the way it ended. It, oh. it was, yeah, it was really rushed and it was not, it didn't exactly follow the book. I mean, a little, it, they tried, I mean, but it, it, it wasn't as ambiguous, I didn't think. Okay. And it, they tried to, did you, you, so you didn't see it? I haven't seen it. I'm no. actually going to watch it tonight because I okay. really didn't even know it existed. And I wanted to talk to you first because I didn't want that clouding my judgment of the book when I was talking to you, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm hoping I'm not spoiling it for you, but um, I, I just, I feel like it was sort of more of a Hollywood ending where they uh, they wanted to end it with on a positive note. So I I'll just I won't say anymore. When I looked up the trailer, I watched the trailer on YouTube and I saw this comment that said ever since I saw Get Out, I don't trust any white woman who serves me tea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right? You know right away. Don't drink it. Well, I loved this. I had so much fun reading it and I couldn't believe that it was so compelling. You know how frequently you read classics that were considered scandalous or giant mysteries at the time and then you read them and you kind of go, eh, it, yeah, I called it. And I had so much, I couldn't believe how well it held up. It's just yeah. so, such a great read. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it it really stands the test of time. Um, it's not it's not heavy it's not it's 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 a great read it's easy read which is not always the case so michelle tell me what you're reading right now Mm. Mm. um i'm actually just finishing um this book which i know your Mm. listeners can't see it's kate atkinson life after life and it is a fantastic fantastic book i love it what's it about i don't want it to end it's about this woman who um she's born in 1910 and she keeps she keeps dying and coming back so it's like she keeps repeating her life over and over until she gets it right so the first chapter is starts in 1910 when she's born and the first chapter is only a few paragraphs long because she she dies in birth so that's Life number one. Oh my gosh. So then you turn the page and it's 1910 again, and it's the same scenario, only one little detail like the doctor didn't get stuck in the snow on the way to the house. So she made it. And then, you know, she ends up dying at, in the sea when she's three. And then, you know, it starts all over again. But one little thing has changed, which prevents her from drowning. So, but the way that Kate Atkinson just writes this book. I mean, I am just in awe of her writing because 
every reiteration, I, I mean, if you, you just wrote the same thing, it would be so boring. But she changes it so much and she puts in so many different details in every iteration that it's it's just so well done. So that by the time you get to, um, you know, she goes through the war and all this kind of stuff, you just feel like you know this family so well because you know so many aspects of their life because she shows so many different things each time. It's really amazing. It's it's just so well done. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Definitely pick it up. I've read of hers behind the scenes at the museum, which is mm. my older daughter's all-time favorite book. And she kept pressing it on me and I kept going, ah, that doesn't sound like something for me. And I finally read it and it was one of those books that I regretted. I, I couldn't believe it took me that long to read. It's weird. It starts... This woman starts narrating her life literally from the moment she's conceived. Oh. Which sounds weird, right? But Similar. You, you're now in this book where you, I think she's one of those writers where you can hear that premise and go, Kate Atkinson can do this. I'm going to I'm going to trust her with this. One, right. <laughs> yes. Like sure. as you were describing that book, I was thinking. If it had been anyone else by Kate Atkinson, but Kate Atkinson, I might say, oh, that's going to be boring. Yeah. But because I knew you were talking about her, I was thinking, oh, I bet that's so good. It's very good. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to pick it up. Do it. No, no. And I'll pick up this one. <laughs> okay. Exchange. Good. We'll have a Kate Atkinson party. Good. Hey, that's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. Will you tell my listeners where they can find you online? Oh, sure. Um, you can just go to my website, michellecoxwrites.com, and you will find the blog and all the, the weekly stories, and you will find all my social media buttons where you can click and connect with me across the channels. So yeah, and please sign up for my newsletter because I do huge giveaways every couple months. And I'm talking like iPad, a set of books, set of oh luggage, gosh. jewelry, scarves. I put together this gigantic prize package and one lucky subscriber wins. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, really giving away that. the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Super. Okay. Thank you. Well, this has been so much fun talking to you. I found, feel like I found a new reading pal. Yay. And I hope you will come back anytime you have a book you want to tell me about. This has been a blast talking to you. Yeah, thank you. I'd love to come back. I would love to hear if you've read My Cousin Rachel or seen either of the movie adaptations and what you thought. Let me know over on Instagram at Best Book Ever Podcast. Links to everything we discussed are in the show notes or at my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your favorite mystery-loving friend and rate it on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you at the library.